Welcome to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr. And our big idea this week is something that doesn't exist yet, the future of Africa. The Latin writer Pliny the Elder is credited with saying, Ex Africa semper aliquid novi, out of Africa forever something new. What does the future hold for Africa? We've come a long way from the darkest Africa of the explorer Henry Morton Stanley, but the continent still suffers, probably more than any other, from misapprehension, ignorance and prejudice. Like almost everyone else, Africa had a pretty difficult 20th century with more than its share of conflict, disease and poverty. These things create images that linger in the mind when we think of Africa. And indeed, parts of the continent are still the theatre for terrible suffering and inequality. But the continent is also home to four of the fastest-growing economies in the world today, and it's a place of amazing natural and cultural diversity and resource, with a billion people speaking 2,000 languages, a young and urbanising population, and a lively global diaspora. So it's time for the rest of us to wake up to Africa. Joining me to talk about the continent's future are two African scholars who are members of that diaspora in Hong Kong. Kofi Yakpo is a Ghanaian who works in the Department of Linguistics at Hong Kong University. And Fasil Tesfe, who is from Ethiopia, is director of the African Studies Programme, also at Hong Kong U. So, to begin with, I mentioned uh, misapprehensions, and I want to start by giving you both a chance to knock down <laughs> some of what you see as, as widespread um, mistakes or prejudices about Africa. Kofi, you get the first shot. Yeah, um, it's, it's a complex topic because it involves so many different types of stereotypes that uh, it's often difficult to even tease them apart. Uh, I guess one of the biggest uh, misapprehensions is that Africa is not a continent but a country or something similar to a country. Um, I, I, I recall the anecdote of Joe Biden, the vice president of the United States, saying in a public, in a public uh, press conference that Africa is a country that has resources and potential, <laughs> Works, <yes. laughs> which uh, which stirred a lot of uh, commotion <laughs> in Africa. And okay, so Africa is not a country, and in that sense, it's a continent with all its diversity, mm-hmm. linguistic diversity. For example, Africa has uh, two thousand languages spoken all over the continent. There is no such language as African, which I'm sometimes asked, do you mm-hmm. speak African? Mm. It's a country which has a huge range of economic um, diversity, political diversity. I would probably say that the difference between you know countries like, let's say, Nigeria or Morocco and South Africa and Djibouti is as large as can get in terms of global distribution of, of wealth, mm-hmm. resources, human resources, geography, and so forth. So when people think of Africa, often they would think of rural and wild Africa, wouldn't they? Think of game parks and elephants and all this kind of thing. Um, But in fact, Africa is urbanizing very fast. Africa is urbanizing, is the continent that is urbanizing the fastest of of all continents. Um, The estimates are that in 2020, 2030, about 50 to 60% of the population will be living in urban agglomerations, which is must be seen in the light of, of course, previous condition where 
much of the population of Africa was rurally based. Yes. Okay. Fasil, your turn to have a go at some <laughs> prejudices um, or mistakes about Africa. One of the um, major issues that I would see here is that Africa is uh, the continent has become a sort of a um, the victim of generalizations, very simplified generalizations. Mm. Uh, and there is a tendency, you know, um, f- as uh, Kofi said, um, you know, of presenting it as a country. That was, that's one. The other thing would be uh, putting poverty on everyone else as if uh, the continent, the entire continent uh, was poor or, you know, these kinds of uh, generalizations which, uh, in a sense, make uh, the um, – give a wrong picture. Because this is often what what we see of Africa, isn't it, on news programs, for example, well, if there's some crisis of hunger or… or <clears throat> we were to film objectively any scene, any place where there's a crisis, we would have the same images coming out. But I think the uh, the problem is that when people think of Africa, it's automatically – there are automatisms that have developed, which is showing – uh, these images, uh, you know, one of the one of my personal experiences is that, for instance, you know, when I tell people that I'm from Ethiopia, you know, people start smiling a little bit because they would say, "You don't look like an Ethiopian." It's not they're not talking about my physiognomy, but it's just that I'm not, you know, I don't look like a, a one of those kids that no, everyone yeah. was seeing uh, in the 1980s uh, on TVs. So. I guess that's the kind of um, misconceptions yeah. that exist and that make that make it difficult for people to see beyond. Uh, yes, don't, don't get the impression that Fasilo is very fat. <laughs> He's describing him as well-built. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I have another one that is actually maybe slightly complicated, and that is people think of African political organizations or, or agglomerations. They say Africa is a tribal place. Uh, how accurate is that? Kofi? Yeah, that's an interesting question as well. Um, well, what we have is basically some kind of, I think, as a legacy of colonialism, some kind of double speak. So we are speaking about the same kind of social phenomena or political phenomena, but we have developed different languages. One for the developed world, the so-called developed world, and the other for Africa, uh, and maybe other parts of the world as well, Southeast Asia, for example. Um, one is tribe and the other is nation. So that's one of these double-speak words. Yes. So while we speak about nations or peoples in Europe or the U.S., um, we would speak about tribes in Africa. Or we would use the term language to designate French, but dialect or vernacular to designate Yoruba. In fact, both languages have min- millions, tens of millions of speakers. And the so-called Yoruba tribe has you know, close to 30 to 40 million people who identify with the Yoruba people. So the question is, what are these categories built on? What kind of concepts are they built on? We have to deconstruct these images that are behind, lurking behind these, these okay. views of these terms. I, I, that's entirely fair enough. We, we don't talk about the tribes of Europe. Perhaps we should. Um, and yet, if we're thinking about for example, the politics of Zimbabwe or, or Kenya or somewhere, we do think, do we not, in, in terms of groupings 
that we call, maybe it's an inaccurate word, but we call tribal groupings? Well, I mean, I, I would totally discard the term when talk, you know, in, in a sociological or anthropological okay. sense because I, it doesn't make sense if we don't generalize, use it as a, an analytical tool which makes sense in all, you know, in all environments. But I do think that subnational, you know, subnationalisms, for example, that's the term okay. that is used in, in, in some of the social, sociological and, and political um, discourse. We have subnational allegiances, of course, which may be exploited politically by particular um, political leaders. We have the phenomenon that people, of course, naturally aggregate towards each other if they share a similar language mm. and if they come from a similar part of right. the country, which is something we also do in Hong Kong, for example. We do, we do. <laughs> so in that sense, the question is only how much is it politicized and how much is it does it become the basis of the distribution of power? And that is when we enter into a much more complex arena. That's fair enough. So perhaps we should simply throw out the word tribal because because it suggests because it's a pejorative word, it suggests un, underdeveloped. Um, Sorry, I, I was I was just about to add that mm. uh, you know any kind of identity politics that is conducted on the African continent is put either as tribalism or ethnic uh, mm. politics. Right. So there is that. <coughs> I would say that it's part of that reduction, uh, reductionism that is actively done when it comes to uh, talking about uh, politics in Africa. But I would say, as, as, as Kofi uh, mentioned earlier, um, there is a tension in many African countries between the traditional political systems that existed in mm. the society uh, and the newer colonial, so to speak, uh, systems that were imposed from the 19th, late 19th okay. century onwards. Okay. Okay, now that that leads me into my next question, which is about colonialism, and I don't want to spend too long on this because we're supposed to be talking about the future of, of Africa, but nonetheless, when we look at the map of Africa, we're looking at a, a lot of um, political units that are the creation of colonial history. Perhaps I shouldn't put this question to you as an Ethiopian because Ethiopia is, has a huge, long pre-colonial history, but um, colonialism left... Of, of deep mark on Africa, yes? The very visible uh, traces of colonialism is to be found on the maps of Africa. All, mm. one, all one has to do is look at how the borders are made and how geometric and very precise they are. Uh, these borders do not respect the, um, the distribution of the people, yes. nor do they respect the geographic... Uh, entities that they're separating. So I think uh, the impact is, you can see the impact from there. Uh, and you can imagine how deep it goes when, you know, when a border that was traced to separate two, to make two countries goes, uh, separates um, an, a village living one part of a family on the one side and another one on, on another. Um, but apart from that, I think, um, as a historian, yeah. my uh, what I would say is that you know the um, the impact of colonialism has been 
a lot deeper than that because traditions have been changed, ways of, de- of doing things were changed, uh, beliefs were changed. I mean, uh, there is, a, of course, Ethiopia is a very bad example for that because Ethiopia had adopted Christianity long before most European countries. Yeah. Uh, but uh, if you look at the other African countries, um, Christianity came in the late 19th century with the colonial movement. Yeah. In fact, it's, that's very interesting what Fasil is saying there from his perspective as somebody who comes from a country where Christianity is endemic, it's rooted in the culture. But me coming from a country where Christianity was imposed. This is Ghana. Ghana. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, it's a discussion that is slowly only emerging among West African intellectuals how far Christianity has damaged our capacity to for self-organization, spiritual, mental, intellectual self-organization. And um, we often, and this is interesting, and here we sometimes look to China and say, look, they've done it in such a way that they've taken over the technology, or the Japanese. They've taken over the technology from the West. They've taken out what they like, but they have not traded in their souls. Mm. Right? And so there is, there is a lot of controversy now developing. For a long time, it was a taboo to even criticize the new religions, Christianity and Islam. But that is slowly changing. Um, I think um, my personal research, you know, I have done some research on um, late 19th century medical history in Africa. And one of the things that colonialism did was breaking the African belief systems. And these belief systems had, uh, it wasn't just medical knowledge, but it was also spiritual knowledge. So basically what you had was the replacement of a complex system in which you had religion, healthcare, and so on, that being replaced by a monotheist kind of religion. And I think there's a this imposition had a, a very, very uh, strong impact, profound impact yeah. in the society. We're not only talking about spiritual and religious life, but this would apply to other institutions as well, social, political, oh, and so on. Oh, definitely, definitely. It's, okay. it's an, an example of this kind of thing is, for instance, how in Rwanda, um, Rwanda that had a very complex pre-colonial system of governance, uh, was ended up having a very simplified, very convenient for the Belgians uh, system that had the Tutsis on top and the rest of the population on the bottom. Mm-hmm. And we saw what this type of division uh, ended up with a hundred years later in eighteen in nineteen ninety four with the genocide. Yes. So I, you know, in a sense, it's it's it doesn't apply for the entire continent. And but it doesn't necessarily mean that the causality is always, you know, direct in the sense that whatever problems Africa today ha- has uh, are a consequence of colonialism. But we have to factor in the impact of colonialism and the slave trade, of course, which shouldn't be forgotten either, yes, which robbed Africa of its brightest, uh, strongest, uh, most resilient people for 500 years. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, Let's orient towards the, the future. This is what our program is about. Um, I, I want to ask each of you to take a kind of test case. So choose an African country 
<laughs> take your pick, a anyone, and just tell us something a little bit about that country and and where you think it might be in how how different it might be in ten or twenty years' time. Kofi, would you like to choose? Would you choose Ghana? Um, or have you got another candidate? I would probably choose Nigeria simply because. Um, I think a radio program about the future of Africa without Nigeria is not complete. Okay, so Nigeria is one of the biggest it countries is, in Africa. Exactly. It has the largest population, uh, estimates about, are about 170 million people. It's a country that has is a microcosm of Africa in terms of its cultural, linguistic, and, and diversity. Okay. Where, what sort of problems does it have? Where is it going, do you think? So Nigeria has these very strange you know, discrepancies within it, holds them within itself. One is that we have a division between the north and the south, which is visible in economic and in cultural terms. The south um, was more oriented towards, uh, was developed in some sense uh, differently than the north through colonialism. So we have a more western-oriented, educated elite, while the North had a more traditional elite in the sense that there was more indirect government by the British. So today we find a country which is trying to grapple with this heritage. So we have an extremely dynamic um, population of uh, who, who have uh, the heart of some of the cultural innovations of Africa. We have a huge film industry in Nigeria, which is actually by counting the films alone, the largest in the world, 2,000 films really? a year. Yes, wow. 2,000 films a year, larger, larger than Bollywood and larger than Hollywood. It's only that, of course, the production costs of each film are much lower than Hollywood, right? So we have maybe between $10,000 and $100,000 for the average production, not ten and $100 million, right? <laughs> so in that sense, and this is an, a film industry which organized totally you know, indigenously by its own resources and has now is now beginning to conquer has conquered the rest of Africa and is beginning to conquer the African diaspora and is emerging also in film what, so what the languages the are used in Nigerian cinema? So it is becoming more and more English, mm -hmm. certainly because they want to appeal to an international audience. Mm -hmm. But it's, we also have the use of Nigerian languages like Yoruba, Igbo, Hausa. Those are the major three other mm -hmm. languages. Okay. Then it's also a country which, because of its huge resources, petroleum, um, has managed, for example, to is debt-free. It's an African country which has no external debt left. They re-engineered the entire economic uh, debt structure within the last 20 years. So... That's something that's quite remarkable. Consider that Nigeria had the highest per capita debt in 1970 of all African owners in the 70s. And it's a country which at the same time is extremely uh, tormented by, by regional conflict, the Boko Haram insurgency in the north, yes. which uh, has created a, a huge economic and, and human catastrophe. So if you ask me to gauge the future of Nigeria, I would say... Um, we hope that it survives as a unified state and it doesn't fall apart, uh, which is some people say that. Maybe that might be a better solution, who knows? Because they did have a civil war in the 1970s. There was a civil war in the 70s, although I don't think another civil war would be, uh, would be something that, that is possible. I'd rather think that maybe the, in some way the country you know, disintegrates on, on political lines which are much more... Yeah. Uh, peaceful, but I don't. I don't think that we have to uh, look at in those look at in those terms. I mean, Nigeria has a huge diaspora as well. 
very successful yeah. diaspora in the U.S., for example. The Nigerians are doing extremely well. In fact, you know, together with other African diaspora people, the African diaspora is the most highly educated segment of the U.S. population today, more than the actual indigenous population and more than other immigrant groups, for example, more than Chinese, which is we have the stereotype often that the Chinese are particularly faring particularly well in terms of education, it's, we always forget that the Africans are faring better. <laughs> I would love to bring you both back to do a program on the African diaspora. But yeah. So at the moment, so the, this is Nigeria, clearly in a sort of leadership position in, in the continent, Certainly. I would think. Okay, Fasil, you've had plenty of time to choose. Uh, yes, and um, I'm going back to my roots, I guess. <laughs> Ethiopia. Uh, Ethiopia, okay. yeah. Um, and I, I think it's... Um, Ethiopia is a good example when we are thinking of, you know, of looking into the future uh, of Africa because uh, Ethiopia has been one of the bad examples of Africa. You know, the famine of the uh, 1970s and 80s, the civil war with neighboring countries and Eritrea for about 30 years, and the the, the destruction that uh, followed, that came afterwards. It is very difficult to forecast the future of any country, uh, but I think that what has uh, the development of the country in the past 10 years, 10, 20 years, is, uh, in my opinion, a very good indicator of where the whole uh, country is uh, heading. And I would, you know, it's not a country where, that has a lot of, um, you know, doesn't have oil, I think Ethiopia exports a little bit of coffee, a little bit of uh, hide and skin, uh, but nothing really much. But again, having said that, it is also a country that is uh, uh, experiencing a double-digit uh, economic growth continuously for the past uh, 10 years at least. Um, and I guess the, uh, you know, it is a visible development. Uh, it's a visible development because um, you're seeing infrastructures being built uh, in the country and connecting the country. Uh, one of the things that is very, you know, when we talk about the famine or when people talked about famine in Ethiopia, what most people forget is that, yes, there was famine, but only in the northern part of Ethiopia. The problem was there was enough food in the south, but there was no infrastructure to bring the food from the south to the to the north. Mm-hmm. Uh, And I think what we are seeing in the past, what we saw in the past two decades is that, you know, the country is becoming more and more networked, connected. Um, You're having Addis Addis Ababa used to be the only big city. Now every city in the periphery is also developing uh, and having its own infrastructure and uh, moving along. So... Also I would say right? 90, 90 million, million uh, a population of 90 million, mm-hmm. most of them young um, and most of them, of course, uh, able to contribute to the construction of, of the country. So I, it makes me uh, one of the uh, Afro-optimists in this case. People in Ethiopia think of themselves as Ethiopians. Do they also think of themselves as Africans? That is uh, that's that's a very very um, interesting question. I think because you have the the organization of African Unities headquartered in, in, in Ethiopia, Ethiopia. definitely. When I was um, 
in high school, if you would, if you had asked me this question when I was in high school, I would have answered, "No, I'm not African. I am Ethiopian." Mm. But I think this has more of a historical uh, background uh, for the, you know, for the Ethiopian, for the traditional Ethiopian. The African is the one who was colonized. It's the others. It's the colonized other. Uh, whereas the Ethiopian is, you know, the um, the independent, the one who never succumbed to uh, colonialism. Ethiopia right. was yeah. not colonized. Yeah. Uh, the only it, one, it was the only one. Yeah. Uh, some history books would put Egypt and Sierra Leone yeah. uh, and Liberia, but uh, okay. you know, um, Ethiopia was the only one that was not colonized by Euro- by uh, European colonial power. So. Uh, that is the distinction, uh, and still, um, what, if you would walk among the um, normal uh, population of Ethiopia and ask them if they are African, uh, they would tell you, no, 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 they are what, Ethiopian. What about in West Africa? Well, this is interesting. You know, I'm learning a lot through what Fasil <laughs> is saying because uh, in Ghana, the, the independence speech in 1957, 6 March. 1957, when Ghana gained independence from uh, from Britain, the British Empire. Um, Kwame Nkrumah, who was the political independence leader and the first mm-hmm. president of independent Ghana, said in his speech, um, the independence of Ghana is meaningless without the unity of Africa. So in that sense, a Pan-African vision was already enshrined in the act of independence and the struggle towards independence. So What's happening in Ghana now is that Ghanaian politicians and the Ghanaian political class is reconnecting with that Pan-African vision of the 50s and 60s in the way they envisage their relations with other African countries. So I do think that we have this, there again, diversity in Africa, diversity of political visions, diversity in terms of how the political class is set up. Hmm. I think, I mean, talking about Pan-Africanism, it's... um, in, in Ethiopia, Ethiopia is the center of this Pan-Africanist movement, but I would say it's a symbolic center, uh, not just because uh, the um, African unity, the organization, what used to be the organization of African unity, which is now the African Union, is based in Ethiopia, but also because what Af- Ethiopia represented to the other colonized African countries. Uh, now, coming back to what you said, I think there is um, you know, one of the... Uh, Pan-Africanist logos was back to the roots. And one of the things that um, I am observing in many uh, African countries is that there is a tendency of coming back to people are going back to their respective countries. Uh, You have before, you know, in the 80s and 90s, the movement was towards getting out of Africa and trying to go to the, you know, to the U.S. or to Europe. Now what you're seeing is a return and um, people are coming back, investing in their countries and staying in their countries. Mm -hmm. So there is, uh, you know, the Pan-African dream of coming back to Africa and developing Africa is taking place. There's still a lot to be done in the sense that, um, unfortunately, much of the trade, for example, that involves Africa still involves an African country and Europe or China or India. So inter-African trade, for example, is still a small percentage, I think about 15% of the total trade volume. 
And of course, politically, there remains a lot to be done in terms of finding a unified voice for the continent. We've used up our time. Thank you both very much indeed. Kofi Yapko and Fasil Tesfaye. And thank you for listening.